Thank you, Kaz and uh, Gavin, and uh, before that, Stacey uh, and the assistance of Joe, uh, with that word of exhortation. Uh, before we continue in 1 Timothy 2, I uh, just wanted to keep inviting you. Uh, we're missing out on the Lord's Supper on weekends, but there are those services of scripture reading with the Lord's Supper, and this week it's Monday night, 5.30pm. You're very welcome. Just register online or ring the office. And there's an outline of the sermon in the Facebook comment section on the live Facebook feed today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written word of scripture may now and always be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It is easy to wonder these days, does gender matter anymore? At secular law, gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. In some Australian states, recording your gender on your birth certificate has become optional. Back in 2014, Facebook began offering over 50 different gender options for your profile. And some people are arguing that children don't need to be mothered or fathered, just parented. Should a trans woman who went through puberty as a man be allowed to compete in women's sport? It's a very sensitive area. Of course, the denial of relevance of gender flies in the face of common sense, also in the face of our biology, where there are clear differences between men and women. But most of all, Christians know these moves fly in the face of how God designed the world. Genesis 1 and verse 27 says, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. So both equally in the image of God. Men and women, precious to him equally, but complementary rather than identical in every respect. Now, Bible-based Christians generally have no problems agreeing that gender matters in marriage and that ideally children need a mum and a dad, though sadly it's not always possible. But does gender matter in other ways, perhaps beyond the home, for example? We do have such an example here in 1 Timothy today, chapter 2, and I'm just focusing on verses 8 to 10. It's a passage where the Apostle Paul gives gender-specific instructions. In brief, Paul says, Men, pray instead of fighting, and women, dress modestly in good deeds. So gender matters, and we'll take each in turn. Let's start with the blokes. Men, pray, don't fight. It's right there in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Clearly not a demand that only men should pray. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 5, a godly widow is pictured as praying day and night. Although it is true that in the Jewish synagogues at the time only men could lead in prayer. Yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, Paul had women praying in church as long as their hair was arranged appropriately. And so women are welcome to pray. And I would say if there are any women here today who are tempted to be argumentative, well, I'm sure you can listen to what Paul says to the men about their prayers. 
But Paul does say this is especially a word for the men. And he says he wants them to lift holy hands, dictating the correct posture for prayer. If so, the Pentecostals have it all over the Anglicans. Is posture really the issue here? We'd we'd struggle to reproduce the correct biblical posture for prayer. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays his famous prayer to dedicate the temple. And in verse 22, Solomon stood and spread his hands towards heaven. But by verse 54, it says he rose from before the altar where he'd been kneeling. In fact, in Matthew 26, verse 39, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fell with his face flat to the ground and prayed. Is it standing, kneeling, lying flat, or hands up in the air like here? We don't need to worry. The key command is to pray. Literally, Paul wants men in every place to pray. That's the big thing, and posture is only secondary. Friends, even in an Anglican church, lift your hands all you want. But the key issue with our hands is holiness. The background is the Old Testament laws of ritual cleanliness. You had to wash your hands before entering the temple. That was a symbol that we needed to be purified of sin if we wanted a relationship with God. The only way we can approach God in prayer is if we've been cleansed of our sin. The temple was the place for that, to offer the sacrifices, then to meet with God and pray. Now, Christians in every place can pray. We just read, that's why we had last week's passage again, 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6 says, the only way to be forgiven is trusting the one mediator between God and humanity. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for sinners like you and me. If we're going to pray, it can only be on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. What a privilege to have God's grace cleaning up our mess and letting us come to talk to him with hands now holy. Well, verse 8 says holiness should be expressed by avoiding anger, or quarrelling. In the letter to the Ephesians where Timothy ministered, chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In verse 31, to get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. Never more important than when praying. You know, uh, from personal experience, it's hard to lead in prayer at a family meal time if you're just being cranky with the kids. Or in fact, with the world in general. And of course, women can get angry too. But testosterone-laden men can be real aggro, whether it's grumpy style or explosive. And perhaps that also lies behind the comment about posture. Instead of hands raised as fists, we are to raise our hands in prayer. Where Timothy was in Ephesus, there were fights over false teaching. Later, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, refers to those who had an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction. Dealing with that 
error can make us impatient ourselves. But Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. He must gently instruct his opponents in the hope, prayerful hope no doubt, that God will grant them repentance. You see, it's only God who can win those kinds of fights. Now, men, I've said, might be particularly tempted to let aggro interfere with their prayers. I've also observed over the years that women are often more ready to lead in public prayer than men. I love to see women bringing their requests to God. That's all good. But I've sometimes been disappointed to see a, a lack of men leading in prayer at churches. Now, some say women on average tend to be better with words. Kind of natural. Well, whatever the case, according to this verse, men need to take initiative in prayer. This can apply at church or a prayer meeting or your Bible study group and, of course, in your household. Maybe you did not grow up in a praying home. No one ever showed you how. Maybe you get tongue-tied or feel self-conscious. You could ask an experienced Christian for help. But remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not heard because of our many words. We, we, don't, we don't need fancy words. I know a lovely old bloke from a Christian tradition that left all the public praying to the priest. But he worked out that he ought to be able to lead in prayer. So he taught himself to do it. To overcome his nerves, he would come to a prayer meeting with a prayer written out in advance. At first it would be one copied from a prayer book. But after a while he began to personalise it himself, expand on it. And of course now in a prayer meeting he no longer needs to have his prayer written out in advance. Maybe you just try it at home. Just short prayers. I love trying those one line of prayers of thanks, single sentence requests. Or just try picking a psalm or a prayer of Paul that resonates with you and just personalise it a little to your situation and you know, if you have a wife or a girlfriend they'll love you for it. Well then what about the women? As we saw with Stacey's excellent word, Paul says to the women, dress modestly in good deeds. 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 and 10. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Paul is speaking literally and metaphorically about how women should dress. In verse 9 about actual fashion, in verse 10, the real issue he shows is the attitude you clothe yourself in. So verse 9 says women should dress modestly, not extravagantly. That idea of modesty has a sense of restraint. Now, in particular, Paul warns against spending lots of money on your appearance, and the word used there means very expensive. Uh, it was the word used to describe the pearl of great price which cost a merchant everything else he had to buy, where a huge amount of your money goes on fashion, on looks. 
The Bible's not against caring for your appearance. As Stacey said, uh, for the Song of Songs is an example. The Bible's celebration of marriage. In it, the lovers clearly enjoy each other's appearance. And the man does organise some jewellery for his lover. And so I don't think here Paul is against braiding your hair per se. Uh, apparently that was a quite ordinary hairstyle of the time. I think it's the braiding your hair with the gold and the expensive pearls, the, the really pricey stuff. The idea of immodest clothing also does have an overtone of sexual looseness about it. Dressing to show your body off, to say you're available. The obsession with showing your assets to best advantage, apparently a problem for women in the ancient world and still is today with micro skirts and plunging necklines. I think neither seductive nor extravagant fashion has much place in a Christian's life. It's funny, isn't it? Everyone agrees that the sexualisation of pre-teen girls with raunchy fashion is wrong. Well, we need to encourage our young Christian women and indeed young men to ask themselves, why would it be so much better in your teens or twenties? And it is very tempting for an old bloke like me to ask, did you know why your underwear is called underwear? Because it's supposed to be under your outerwear, not visible to everyone. But I think that's the danger of the legalism. Paul is really here inviting women to think for themselves about how to dress modestly. And we won't really solve the issue by developing that list of band styles or running a a ruler over skirt lengths like the old days at school. This is where verse 10 comes into its own, where Paul encourages women to clothe themselves with good deeds, appropriate for those who claim to worship God. I I noted Proverbs 31 verse 25 also, like Stacey, the wife of noble character, she is clothed with strength and dignity. You know, stressing over externals drops away when you focus on what 1 Peter 3 and verse 4 called the beauty of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. But what about these good deeds that a woman is to dress in? What are they? What does the Bible say? Well, any good deeds that the Bible mentions really But it is interesting that the other time good deeds occurs as a phrase in this letter is chapter 5 and verse 10. That verse describes the sort of widow who is eligible to go on the church's welfare list. She is, and I quote, one who is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Some of that may not really be politically correct anymore. But it does teach the value of a woman's ministry around her home, of raising children, of hospitality, and also of humble voluntary work in the church or community. You're never just a mother, as some women attempted to say when asked what they do but have no paid work. There are, of course, any other number of good deeds, good things a woman can do, including the service she might offer her community through her career. But she'll never do better good deeds than the ones in chapter 5, verse 10. 
Of course, we need to remind ourselves that just as men's hands are only made holy through the mediation of Christ, so too women are not saved by their good deeds. As Paul says in chapter in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Grace given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but now revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We're not saved by good deeds, but for good deeds. So as I draw to a close, I'm saying that gender still matters today. And I'm saying it matters in every place. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 does say, I want men everywhere, literally in every place. Many people think this is actually a reference to the prophet Malachi's vision. Chapter 1, verse 11 of Malachi, that in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And the privilege of prayer, which incense sometimes symbolises in the Bible, that was very much once focused on the Jerusalem temple, going there, facing in that direction. It's now available to all nations, wherever they are, simply through Jesus, who offered the one true ransom for sin. So I don't think this is culturally specific to one place or one time. It may be there were specific problems with this in Ephesus where Tim was. Perhaps the pagan temple fashions were seeping into Christian gatherings, but it applies, says Paul, everywhere that believers meet. It's silly, isn't it, to think that there would ever be in any place a time for men to be angry instead of prayerful. And it's silly to think there's ever a time for a woman to be more worried about the latest fashion than worshipping God and doing good deeds. And on the rare occasions I wander down Kira Street or Crown Street late on a weekend, I see just how relevant the Bible is because I notice that well, young men roaming around are still often tempted by agro and the women by immodest fashion. And I repeat again, verse 8 could be applied to women and verses 9 and 10 to the men that God probably knows our more typical temptations. So the Bible doesn't leave us ignorant about godly manhood and womanhood. But it's not necessarily what we think of first. You know, I used to think... Manhood meant muscular Christianity, a sort of doctrinal and personal toughness. And maybe there's a little bit in that. But here I'm challenged to see that manhood begins in prayer. And womanhood gives itself to the deeper beauty of worshipping God openly and the good deeds that flow from that. And for all of us, It's in every place we go. Amen.